Hello, I'm Malcolm Cox and welcome to this latest class in our teaching series on the Gospel of Mark from the Thames Valley Churches of Christ. And these classes are intended to be used in our smaller groups like family groups. So the best thing to do is to read the chapter of Mark in question and then watch this video and then have a discussion together. How you do that exactly is up to you, but that's how I think these can be used best. And we're at Mark chapter 3 and what I want to do today is give an overview of the chapter, uh, its themes and some of the detail. And then I want to focus in on the last part of the chapter and make a few points that I hope we can discuss and find perhaps useful to us. So here we are, we've had Mark chapter 1, we've had Jesus bursting onto the scene, preaching a gospel of good news, of repentance, because the kingdom is coming. We've seen him interacting with all kinds of people, including uh, Peter's family and Peter himself. We've seen him healing people. We've seen him confronting illness and evil and all kinds of things. And now here we are in Mark chapter 3. And we've got a few incidents we're going to look at. Uh, he's healing on the Sabbath, which um, annoys some people. Some crowds follow him. He appoints 12, we'll talk about. And then there's a rather interesting incident with his family and the teachers of the law. And that's actually what we're going to focus on more towards the end of the chapter. But let's first of all look at some of the earlier parts here. The man with the shriveled hand. Now, I, I don't have time in these classes to read all of the chapter. That's why I suggest you read it ahead of time. But let's just summarize here. In verses 1 to 6, he's, uh, it, it is the Sabbath. He's in the synagogue, as often was the case. The man with the shriveled hand is there. And Jesus says, stand up. And what's lawful, he asks, to do evil or to do good, to save life or to kill on the Sabbath. Everybody's very quiet. He expresses the mark tells us that he's feeling anger he's deeply distressed at what he sees to be their stubborn hearts so he tells the man stretch out your hand the man there with a shriveled hand stretch it out he's completely restored and the pharisees say praise god god's power is here no they don't do they they begin they go out and begin to plot with the herodians um, a secular group how they might kill jesus extraordinary. So this is the last of the five conflict stories beginning in Mark chapter 2 verse 1 and concluding here in Mark chapter 3 verse 6. Lots of conflict and it's the climax of all of those because it marks the the decision of his enemies to plot his death. Astonishing. Opposition to Jesus is continuing to build and how tragic it is that some are almost hoping that Jesus will heal on this Sabbath in this occasion so they can condemn him. There's no hint of compassion for the man who needs healing. And that's a warning to all of us that have our own religious agendas. Do we really care about people or do we just want to get done what we want to get done? There's no heart, no good heart in show, um, in view here, except the heart of Jesus. His opponents are not looking to simply question him and find out why he's doing what he's doing, but simply to accuse him. They're cutting, uh, they're cutting short any curiosity they might have. And can you imagine what it mean like for this man with the shriveled hand to stand up in a congregation with that shriveled hand? Uh, in that context, usually that kind of person wasn't allowed in the synagogue. We don't actually know exactly how he got in. Maybe he was concealing his shriveled hand. Jesus knew about it and said, look, I want you to show it to everybody. It's a challenge for people with a disability or a weakness to make it visible to everybody. That's not something most of us would like. And I think what it demonstrates is that this man had great faith in Jesus. He trusted it would be worth the shame uh, or, or the, the, the questioning, horrified looks of other people. He didn't care about what other people thought. He cared about what Jesus thought. Great faith this person had. Jesus in the context must know he's being watched and it looks as if he's doing this healing on the Sabbath to make a point. 
The question is not so much whether or not it is legitimate to meet needs on the Sabbath, but that he, as the one ushering in the kingdom, is claiming lordship of the Sabbath. A huge deal to someone from a Jewish background. Because the ultimate Sabbath, which Jews were expecting to come, meant the day of God's unchallenged reign. That's what they were hoping for. It would be a time of peace, a time of shalom, a time of joy when bondage is over. Bondage to our enemies, bondage to evil uh, is over, and a messianic celebration could begin, that banquet that we see talked about in the Gospels. So Jesus is effectively forcing them to decide whether he is the Messiah by conducting his healings on the Sabbath. Of course, they've made up their mind already. Their hearts, unfortunately, are hard to the revelation of God's voice through Jesus. So there's so many Old Testament examples of that. If you want to have a look at Exodus 7, 8, and 9, that'll give you an Old Covenant perspective. And this section that we're looking at contains the only direct reference to Jesus being angry in the Gospel of Mark. So it must have been significant. The Herodians didn't care about the Sabbath. They, they were simply going to use this situation, this opportunity, to, as a stick to beat Jesus with. Uh, there was an evil alliance forming here between political and religious leaders. So now, after this, we see the crowds following Jesus. They, he goes back to the lake with his disciples. After this, a large crowd from Galilee follows. They hear about what he's doing. People come from all over Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, the regions across the Jordan, around Tyre and Sidon, which being shown here a great appeal of Jesus. Uh, Jesus uh, tells the disciples to have a boat kept ready, um, and he heals many, many diseases, Impure spirits see him, they fall down, and they cry out, you are the Son of God. And he tells them not to tell anybody. So there is a time to get away. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's getting away with his disciples, or he's trying to. Uh, somebody said, if we don't take time to be apart, we will fall apart. Uh, I've seen that happen in my own life from time to time, and perhaps some of us have had it happen to us. There's no need to feel guilty about going apart to spend some time resting and getting refreshment from God. It must have been hard for Jesus to go away like this when he knows all the physical and spiritual needs all around him better than anybody else would. But he, he doesn't have any guilt about going away to get some space for his own refreshment and that of his disciples. It looks like Jesus is getting away from the location of controversy for at least for a little while. It's as if he's made his point to the teachers and the Pharisees of the law, and there's no profit in continuing with his presence. It's the turn of the crowds to have access to his power and his teaching, untroubled by the negativity of the religious leaders. What a shame that is. The disciples are following him to this next sphere of his activity, and perhaps this marks the first time they have been asked to make a break together with him. They're demonstrating their discipleship by following him wherever he goes. The crowds are getting healed, the demons are being cast out, and uh, but neither group are putting their faith in him or desiring to be his followers yet at this point, still observing. After this, Jesus appoints the 12 in verses 13 to 19, goes up on a mountainside, calls those, uh, he appoints 12 uh, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons, and we get the names of the twelve, which we won't read again now. What's going on here? Well, Jesus chooses these men at the time when you could say he's under the most pressure so far in his mission. So it, it tells us that he sees training and delegating to these men who will carry on the work, training and delegating as being more important even than healing and preaching. He's doing a lot of healing. He's doing a lot of teaching and preaching. It's all good. 
Many people are benefiting, but he takes the time to go away and be with other people so that he can train them. Really important thing here for us to learn, training our children, training one another, training people for leadership and roles of responsibility and how to use their gifts in the church. It's very important that there is a mission out there in the world we need to be participating in, but by being able to do that well means also getting training and training others. So what's Jesus doing? In a sense, he's constituting his own church. He's been rejected by the church of Israel. Now he's making his own. The apostles are to have a commission to do essentially what Jesus has been doing, preaching and casting out demons, healing the spirit, you could say, the soul and healing the body, making a difference with the compassion of God to people's eternal destiny and their physical needs and presence of what, what's going on for them here on this earth. As uh, a commentator put it, Mark presents the 12 as individuals who, in spite of their own weaknesses, were chosen by Jesus to be the foundation of the church. How encouraging. You and I have plenty of weaknesses. So did these men. You know it. And yet Jesus chose them with their weaknesses to be the foundation of the church. He's chosen you and I to be the foundation of the churches where we are. And we're part of that. And you have an essential part to play. Doesn't matter uh, how significant your weaknesses are. So also here, we're seeing the division of people into insiders and outsiders. We start here with some insiders, the apostles or disciples, and then we're going to go on and see some, well, two groups of outsiders, the critics who are his family in this context and the teachers of the law. And then again, some more insiders, those seated in a circle around him doing God's will. Now, you and I don't always relate to Jesus as well as perhaps we might like, but we can relate to the disciples. And sometimes this is in their victories and sometimes it's in their confusion and even in their sins, right? Remember, the gospel is written to help disciples, people like you and me. And Mark does this in part by presenting Jesus as an inspiration, but also in presenting the disciples in all of their weaknesses and sins so that we can understand if Jesus can use them, he can use you and me even all this, these many years later. They are as much a focus uh, in the gospel from this time on as is Jesus, at least until we get to the passion narrative. Now what I'd like to do is spend a bit of time focusing on verses 20 to 35 and uh, the situation with the family and the teachers of the law and the topic of what it means to have Jesus as our brother. Jesus as our brother. Did you have a brother growing up? Was he an older brother? I didn't want an older brother growing up and I didn't have one and I was rather glad because I didn't want some older brother bossing me about. But all of us can benefit from having Jesus as our older brother. And I hope we look forward to, to that experience. And I've enjoyed it already. And I think this is a lot of what we're looking at here is what it means to have Jesus as a brother. What does that really mean? We, we believe in that as Christians. But what does it actually mean that he is our brother? So we're going to look at this passage, which is what's called a Mark and sandwich, uh, not something you eat. But it's called a Mark and Sandwich because one of the literary devices that Mark uses frequently in his gospel is to begin a story, interrupt it, and then finish it. And we see one of those here where we're introduced to his family who think Jesus is out of his mind. And then we have the discussion about Beelzebub and uh, uh, with the teachers of the law. And then we have the conclusion, again, talking about family, who are my mother and my brothers. So we're seeing there's something important about that. And that's something you might like to discuss in your group is to why does Mark do this? Why does he put family on either side of this controversy about Beelzebub and the teachers of the law? I'd be interested to know what you uh, what you come up with there and what you think is the reason for that. Let me know what you think. So here we have, first of all, the family coming 
and uh, Jesus is in, in a house, there's a crowd, and, and they're not even able to eat, and they're so busy. The family hear about this, they go to take charge of him, they say, he is out of his mind. Uh, this is one of those interesting things in the Gospels where it looks to me like this is only recorded because it's true. You wouldn't make this story up and put it in if you were trying to prove that, the, that Jesus was who he said he was and that Christianity was what it was and the disciples were who they say they were. You don't make this kind of story up. You, you'd gloss over this if it actually happened. But Mark puts it in because it's teaching us something fundamental uh, about Jesus and about his family. And it says they were not even able to eat. Now, this isn't about being ascetic, as in it's a good thing that people, when, when we're too hungry, uh, too busy to be eating or something like that. That's not really the point. I mean, Jesus could feed 5,000 people. This is about his humanity and his humility. He had a choice whether to eat or not. He chose not to. Imagine how painful it was for Jesus to hear his family saying he was out of his mind. And this passage is not about excluding family. It's about family sometimes just not understanding what it means to be a follower of Jesus, not having faith, in fact, at least at this point, because we do know later that Mary was at the cross when Jesus was crucified. And we know that Mary and the rest of the family were in the upper room in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, uh, praying along with the other disciples. So there's always hope for our family. If they're still alive, don't give up faith. Don't, don't give up tr uh, hope uh, that they will join you in the faith. And here we have the teachers of the law coming down from Jerusalem. We've got um, headquarters are now paying attention. We might have had local teachers of the law involved up till now, but now, oh, they're coming from Jerusalem, from headquarters to deal with Jesus. He's, uh, he's getting a, uh, the attention of HQ. And they are uh, upset because they say he's the, uh, by the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. And then he reasons, Jesus reasons with them saying, what? How could, how could this be? How can Satan drive out Satan? He's saying, you're saying I'm I'm engaged in civil war here? That's not what's going on. And he shows them the folly of their argument. But I like the way that he engages them because they're saying this. And rather than him rejecting or ignoring what they're saying, it says he called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. I think that's wonderful. Sometimes we need to engage those who are, in a sense, in a sense our enemies. He calls them over. He could have excluded. He could have pushed them out. He could have ignored what they were saying. There are times not to pay attention to critics, but there are times to call them over and have a conversation. I wonder if you're facing any persecution, any opposition, whether it's time to say no and ignore, or whether it's time to say, let's have a conversation. Something to think about. Now, of course, in talking about the uh, eternal sin here, we should make a, take a moment to say a couple of things. Truly, I tell you, verse 28, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. This has caused many people of the Christian faith to be overly anxious about their spiritual status. Have I committed the eternal sin or the unforgivable sin? And, and some of us have committed grievous sins and some of us have committed many sins over and over and we worry that this could be the case with us, that we have committed something for which we cannot be forgiven. I'll only say a couple of points here for the sake of the time that we have. But the first is simply this. Those of us who are anxious about having maybe committed that sin clearly cannot have committed that sin because at the very least, we're still worried about it. The, Jesus is talking to people who have already decided that what Jesus is doing is not of the Holy Spirit, but is of the spirit of Satan. 
This is their settled decision. They are opposing the Spirit of God deliberately by choosing to believe that it's by the power of Satan Jesus is doing what he is doing. If you're asking me, have you committed the eternal sin? I'd have to say, well, I think that's highly unlikely simply because if you had committed the eternal sin, you and I would not be having that conversation. You wouldn't be concerned about it. You would already have decided to go a different way in opposition to Jesus. So I think that's all, unfortunately, we have time to day uh, to deal with that particular issue. If you're really concerned about it, talk to a person who knows the Bible well and, and pray together, and God will give you some wisdom and insight into that issue. Now let's go on and talk about the true family of Jesus. His mother and brothers arrive in verse 31. They stand outside. They send somebody in, a crowd sitting there around Jesus, and they tell him, your mother and brothers, they're outside. And they're looking for you. And he asks this fundamental question, but who are my mother and my brothers? He looks at those seated in this circle around him and says, here, here they are, my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So what does this mean? What does this tell us about Jesus's family? His, if you like, his true spiritual family. It tells us at least three things. Let me go through these briefly. Firstly, his family, his true family, trust him. We see in this situation that people are seated in a circle. They're sitting there learning from him. They're at peace. They're settled there. They trust his goodness. They trust his strength and his power and his protection. They trust his identity, that he is who he says he is. And, and, and that makes all the difference. Even when things look a bit mad. And for Mary, his mother, they looked a bit mad. And because they looked a bit mad, I reckon, it, she forgot. She forgot who he was. She forgot what the angel had told her. I mean, this is Mary who heard directly from the angel, from God, telling her the name of her son and what he was, was and what he was to do. And even she has forgotten this at this point. Later, she comes back to it. But at this point, she's forgotten because things are a bit crazy. He's not eating properly. And he, you know, all this stuff is going on with this controversy with the religious leaders. And that, I think, is, is a little encouraging in the sense because if she could forget who Jesus was, well, it's not that surprising that you and I sometimes forget who he is and that we can trust him. But his true family fundamentally trust him. The second thing we see here is that the true family of Jesus stay curious about him. They're curious. They sit to be taught. They are with him, with one another, with him. They're following him in company with one another, a band of brothers and sisters, a doing life together family, bonded by Jesus as brother, as well as Lord and friend and saviour. They have a sincere love for one another. There's a life involvement together. There's a serving one another. There's a teaching one another that happens when we're truly family, when we truly trust Jesus as our brother. How do we build this spiritual family? by being together with him, one another, doing life together. It must have been hard for these people to gather together like this at a time when in that culture, if you didn't work, you didn't get paid, but still they gathered to learn from Jesus. It wasn't convenient. It was sacrificial. That's the way it is still today. We make sacrifices to gather together, to learn together and to worship together. The third thing we see about Jesus's true family is that they are obedient. Obedient. Obedient for a good reason, not out of guilt or out of duty. But in verse 35, he says, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. There's a delight in obedience that comes when we are truly the family of Jesus Christ, when he is our brother. 
certainly there are struggles in the Christian life to be obedient, but obedience is, what is it? I, I may have said this in the last class. Obedience is the channel for God's power into our lives, or obedience is the channel for the power of Jesus into our lives. It's the channel for God's transformation. That's the point of obedience. And it, it comes out of a love for God because we trust him. It's not just to keep us in his good books. Can't do that. It's not possible. We don't have enough goodness in us to be in his good books. He, we're only in his good books because he chose to put us there. So therefore we obey him so that he can transform us more and more into the likeness of his son. So to wrap up, it is encouraging to know that the physical family of Jesus did eventually come round. They did, didn't they? It took a while. But they did. And it's not here, Jesus isn't talking about excluding family. That's not his point. It's about expanding it. He's offering this possibility of being in his family to all people, including his physical family, but also the spiritual family that are around him. It doesn't matter who you are. Everybody has equal access. Jesus wants to be your brother, my brother and yours. All we need to do is accept what that means and what we've talked about here. Those who enjoy Jesus as their brother, as their elder brother, they are the ones who trust him, they stay curious about him and around him, and they're obedient to him. That's not complicated, is it? I'm not saying it's always easy, but at least it's not complicated. What does it mean to have Jesus as our brother? It's not that, it's not that complicated. So I hope these thoughts from Mark chapter 3 are helpful to you. Have a good discussion. Send me any questions you've got. Malcolm at MalcolmCox.org. The next Sunday sermon will focus on Mark chapter 4 and then we'll have another class on Mark chapter 5 coming up in the very near future. Until the next time, take care and God bless.